This is Unorthodox, and I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer. Friends, Passover is upon us, so we're releasing this a day early as you prep for your first Seder. Now, you may realize, if you're an avid listener to Unorthodox, that we don't do reruns. I mean, we just don't do them. We give you 50 or so brand new, high-quality, premium, Chalav Yisrael, hectored new episodes every year. And we do that because the world is ever-changing. I mean, what is it that we could have said about Israeli politics or the Oscars three years ago that would still hold up today? Things are always changing, except, of course, the greatness of Gal Gadot and Corduroy. But in general, things are always changing. And so reruns just seem inappropriate. The Jewish people are people moving through time and moving forward. However, this year, we're rerunning a very, very special episode. It was the Passover episode from 2020. It dropped on April 1st, 2020, which, as you may recall, was not even two weeks into the worldwide shutdown due to the COVID-19 pandemic. We, of course, were as thrown by it as any of you were, and we had no idea what to do. And so what we did was instead of trying to stumble forward blindly into the dark, we reached back into the past and went super basic. We produced the Passover episode that I think we'd always been a little afraid to produce before. The episode that just said, here's how you do it. Here we are. We're just going to explain it. We're not going to try to be hip or cutting edge. We're just going to look back into our past and say, what are the bare essentials of this holiday that for thousands of years the Jews have used to remember the exodus from slavery into freedom and that other peoples have used as their metaphor, as their template to think about their journeys from bondage into liberation. We offered a Passover episode that we called our Socially Distanced Seder Guide, in which we went through all of the different things on the Seder plate and said, what are these for? In which we looked at the classic Passover songs and said, how exactly do you sing this thing? In other words, in which we took ourselves back into Sunday school, back into our childhood, and said, let's relearn this holiday from the start. I think it was one of the best episodes we've ever done. This year, it seems like a good time to rerun our episode from three years ago, not because the world is the same. The world is, of course, different, but because we think that staring into the depths of COVID, we got something right, which is that sometimes for a holiday, you just have to say, what is it all about? And you have to go be the student again and seek a teacher and learn something from scratch. You know, like the way the best Passover meals are prepared. This is our socially distanced Seder guide from April 1st, 2020. Have a Zissen Pesach, a wonderful Chag Matzot, a wonderful holiday. Be free. And thank you for being members of the J Crew. Why is this Passover different from all other Passovers? This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer with your hosts, Liel Leibowitz. Ma Nishtana. And Stephanie Taylor Butnick. Where's all the bread? Now, our listeners may know that we are living in extraordinary, unusual times. Nothing's the same. Everything's different. And by that, we mean that, of course, it is the season of Chag, the festival of the unleavened bread about which we read in Torah. Stephanie. 
How is this episode different from all other episodes? What is going on this week? So this is, of course, our Passover episode. That's a thing we do every year. It's a holiday that comes up every year. And the thing is, this actually is not the episode we are planning on bringing you for Passover. That episode was going to be all about this amazing new Passover Haggadah that Tablet came out with just this month. And it has its roots in the online PDF version that we were offering um, through Unorthodox a few years back. But it's, it's an expanded version of that. And it's part of our partnership with Artisan Books, which means it's just as beautiful, just as well designed as the newest Jewish encyclopedia. Um, so we were actually going to take this whole episode and tell you all about the fun stuff in that book. But things have actually changed a bit in the past three to four weeks. And so what we've decided to do is take a step back, right? Pull the curtains back on what the Passover Seder is, because we know a lot of people are going to be doing them on their own or for the first time. And so we're actually going to walk you through the steps of the Seder. So that if you have never hosted a Seder, if you've never been to a Seder, you can listen to this episode and actually know exactly what you'll need to do to do your Passover right this year. Amen, Sela. I know it's a dark time, but one of the, the upsides I really, really believe is that there are a lot of first-time Seder hosters, just like me, right, who might never have hosted a Seder because their apartment is too small, their parents live nearby, their in-laws live nearby, there just didn't seem to be like a good time to do it. How could I get so many pounds of brisket in my tiny apartment freezer? But what the circumstances of this year are actually forcing us to do is really take some agency and take some ownership of the Passover Seder. And it's going to look different, right? It's going to look different whether you do a virtual Seder with your family, whether you do one on your own, whether you do one with your chosen community. It's all going to look different for all of us this year. So what we want to do is show you that you can embrace that. You don't have to just get through it. You can actually put your own spin on it in a way that I think is going to be really important for all of us going forward. And think about it. We would have four, five, six, eight times as many satyrs this year because people can't be together. It's satyrs everywhere. The multiplication of the satyrs. We will have so many of them and each one of them will be miraculous and special and full of light and hope. And we're here, no matter how you feel, no matter how daunting the task is, we're here to give you a little, well, an orthodox tutorial on how to do it. Another fun thing about this episode is that we have a ton of amazing music, really cool original Passover beats that are going to entertain you. And they're actually really fun if you want to play them during the Seder as well. So you'll be hearing bits of the so-called Seder by Josh Dalgan and Bram Presser, who was a previous guest on the show, his Yidcore take on Dayenu. You'll also be hearing from Menachem Creditor, and you'll have all of those links at the end of the show. So Stephanie, what you're saying is that this episode actually is going to take people through the entire Seder. So if there are parts of it they don't understand, this episode will be a primer for how to do a Seder. It's it's the it's the Seder lesson we all need. You will learn what goes on the Seder plate, what it symbolizes, what you can add, what all the steps of the Seder are, when it is that you actually get to eat, which is actually not for a very long time. So buckle up and this is a like an A to Z 101 Passover for newbies. All topped off with some amazing songs that we can sing. And completely chametz free. No bread to be found. And also, if you've hosted for the last 20 years, still listen, because you're going to learn a lot. And it's really important that we all think about the Seder as something that we can make our own this year. Hey guys, Liel here. We know each other well enough by now, so I feel comfortable telling you that my favorite TV show has always been, is, and always will be, Scooby-Doo. There's something about the mystery, about the detective work, about everything and everyone walking around in the dark that just kind of really gets me excited. And thankfully, 
the night before Passover, we get to do something that the Mystery Machine Gang would have absolutely loved. It's called B'dikat Chametz, and it's so much fun to do, especially with kids, even if you don't intend to rid your entire house of unleavened bread products. The idea here is to make sure that there is not even a crumb left of forbidden food throughout the Passover holiday. And so here's what you do. You take several pieces of paper or aluminum foil or whatever environmentally friendly material you want to use. And you take tiny little pieces of chametz. It could be a single goldfish cracker or a single morsel of bread, as long as it's very, very small. And you roll it up in the newspaper or the aluminum foil and you hide it throughout the house. And then you turn off all the lights in your house and you invite your children, your parents, your loved ones, your friends to go all over the apartment and look through every nook and cranny using a candle and a feather and find each and every one of the packets you have hidden, which, of course, is also a pretty good way of making sure there's no other unwanted pieces of unleavened evildoers lying forgotten in the open. And as you collect all the pieces of chametz, you say the following blessing. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav, v'tzivanu al biur chametz. So get yourself a candle and a feather, or just a flashlight and a pencil, or whatever you have lying around the house. Turn off all the lights and go on a really exciting holiday-themed scavenger hunt. So do you guys ever do B'dikat Chametz? Do you feather and candle it? Last year, I think we had a feather. Somebody had given us, maybe Hebrew school had sent home a feather. And of course I've got matches and I think we did a candle. But I felt that sense of jubarisment, like I'm trying a new ritual that I've always heard about, but I'm not sure that I'm getting it right. And what if my kids get the wrong idea? And what if we end up with some screwed up Oppenheimer family B'dikat Chametz that isn't the real thing? So I'm not a confident burner of Chametz yet. Stephanie, did Cat Stevens ever find the unleavened bread? Cat Stevens finds every bit of like crumb or snack that is ever in any corners. But I do say that this year I actually think I'm going to do it because I've been sitting in my apartment for like 25 days. It could use a dusting, so maybe I should try. So Mark has the biggest family of all of us, but for him, this is actually going to be a smaller Seder than usual. He has some insights from Oppenshire Manor about how to make that Seder just a little bit smaller this year. Wonderful Seders come in all sizes. You can have a great Seder by yourself. You can have a great Seder with 30 or 40 people. At my household, the tradition has grown to about 22. And this year, it's going to be shrunk down to about seven. And frankly, if little David, who's one year old, goes to bed early, it will be six. So we will be at one third or one quarter strength of where we usually are. Whatever your normal size is, let's talk about getting small. Jewish history is filled with times when all of a sudden the simchas, the joyous occasions, the parties had to kind of take a backseat to current events. When I was writing my book on the bar and bat mitzvah, I remember a lot of rabbis making the point that during the Holocaust, nobody had a bar bat mitzvah. And what they meant was, look, if you were in the camps, you didn't have the big party, but that didn't mean that you didn't have a spiritual milestone. You still became a male or female adult by reaching the age of maturity. It doesn't have to do with the party. And similarly, we are called upon to observe Passover, to have a Seder, 
even if it's not the usual huge Seder, if we happen to be in a time of pandemic and the Seder gets small, or maybe it gets to be nothing at all except a notion, except an idea, except reading a little bit of the Haggadah that night, that's okay. One of the ultimate rules in Judaism, remember, is pekuach nefesh, to save a life. The party always takes a backseat to our own physical well-being. So look, don't feel bad about the fact that the Seder's not as big this year. In fact, to the contrary, I think there's some upsides, and that's what I want to talk about. Let's be honest. When you're only performing for your own immediate family, all the pressure is off. No longer do you have the creaky-voiced cousin who always wants to sing three or four songs after dinner when everyone else just wants to hit the road. No longer will you worry about your Hebrew pronunciation or your bad singing voice. This is the lowest pressure Seder you will ever have. And in a sense, that's its own kind of freedom, right? I mean, you are being freed, if you are the host, from the responsibility of being perfect or even being very good at all. Something else is, you're now free to be a little bit ridiculous, maybe in a way that feels true to yourself. I know that for myself, I like to dress up. I like to put on a little bow tie, but I think that I often wouldn't when hosting my own Seder because you don't want to make guests who show up in jeans and a t-shirt feel bad. So I always aim for kind of like khakis and button down vibe with you know a nice yarmulke, maybe a nice V-neck sweater. This year, wear whatever you want. This is the year to bust out your crazy hat. This is the year to do it in your sweatpants if that's what makes you happy. This is also a year when you can experiment with food. You're not going to be making as much of it, so why not be creative or try that dish that you always wanted to try? Maybe you're someone who's not particularly concerned with what's kosher for Passover or what's not, but in other years you always felt you had to be more rigorous out of deference to your guests who were more religious. Not this year, baby. Anything goes. The menu is more personalized than ever. And speaking of cooking, if you're only cooking for three or four people, maybe you could all do the cooking together. Maybe this isn't the year to banish everyone from the kitchen as you have to whip up the big feast for 20 people. Maybe this is the year to rope everyone in. This is also the year to have the Seder that you've always wanted to have. The parts that you don't like, cut them out. The parts that you always wanted to go deeper on, go deep. That song in the back of your Haggadah that you always meant to learn, learn that mother. All in all, quarantine Seder is the most liberated Seder that you could have. It's true that it won't be the most social. It's true that for some of us, it will be lonelier, but it will also be free. This is the year when that line about reclining on a cushion can be as real as you feel. You can do the whole thing on a sofa or maybe just on the sofa of your mind. But I think this will be the freest Seder we've had in all of our freedom. Enjoy it. All right, so now it's time to actually get to the Seder. And, and when you're setting up the Seder, we all know, if you know nothing else, that there's something called a Seder plate. What's in it? What goes on it? How do you make a Seder plate? We turn to Tablet's resident Mamala, author of Mamala Knows Best, Marjorie Engel, to explain. So, so, so. 
Passover. Whenever we want something explained to us, something Jewish, something really, really anything in the world, we call on our wonderful colleague, Marjorie Engel. Are you calling me school mom? You wrote a book called Mamala Knows Best. Oh, right. <laughs> so by definition, you so know school best. Mama-la. So <laughs> school us, Mamala. So if the Seder is the centerpiece of Passover, the centerpiece of the Seder, quite literally, is the Seder plate. What's on a Seder plate, Marjorie? I'm so glad you asked, Stephanie. Let's start with a basic. Okay. We're going to want some karpas, some haroset, some maror, some chatzeret, which some people even skip, like my family. The roasted shank bone, the zeroa. Give us each one and their symbols. So, so karpas okay. is. Karpas is a green vegetable. I'm sure that there are all kinds of things about like this symbolizes happy times for the Jewish people. But I'm going to go with spring yeah. because I feel like most of these things have this sort of iconic change of the seasons, multi-culty, right. old, powerful thing happening. And in your house, what's the carpus? My parents battled it out when I was growing up because my dad's family did potato. Potato. I know, right? Which is allowed. Which just, but it it's is not allowed. a green vegetable. But yes, anything you want to do, <laughs> fine. Really Especially right if one. one parent can mock the other parent for growing up uncultured and poor. And, and your mother? <laughs> they did the parsley thing. I didn't realize for a long time that it was a green vegetable. I thought it was parsley. Like I thought right. you put Carpus parsley on the table. Parsley. Yes. yes. And whenever I have parsley on a dish, which I had last night, like a good pasta with parsley, it tastes like Passover. That's so cute. Instead of cilantro, I've been using parsley a lot. But a thing that you can do is have a lot of celery on the table for when your children are fetching with hunger. And annoying, as they so often are. And then you have a thing that is both a ritual object and a snack. Great. So that's that's good. That's one. All right, what else? maror, bitter herbs. I did. In my family, it is the traditional horseradish root. Um, You want it to be as painful as possible to eat. It's obviously a symbol of bitterness. We want absolutely... Butch, can I say dick-waving behavior in the show? Yes. Okay, dick-waving behavior of eating the biggest wad of horseradish and tears running down your face. I love that. That's yeah. me. But can we also put a dollop of horseradish sure. on it? We could do that. Chazeret. We don't do it. What is it? It's another bitter thing because we're Jews. We got to have so much bitter all the time. As I'm reading here from the Akata, we've researched this a lot, and it says, a second bitter herb often remain lettuce, no one really understands this one. So do we need <laughs> it? Which is true. We don't do it. Why I, do we do it? I always we was baffled. Yep. So and some people have five instead of six items. Shankbone or Zroa. Zroa. Great name for a band. All of these are great names oh for bands, Oh my God, right? everything on the Seder plate Prosis, is a band name. Kazarit, Zroa. <laughs> right. Hello, Wisconsin. Yeah, we're Carpas. <laughs> So, Zroa, again, sacrificial reminder of our past, of the, you know, holy temple. Yeah, it's a little roasted lamb bone. You can get it from your butcher when you order your corned beef or whatever. So basically bone, a meat a meat bone, an a animal meat, bone. A meat bone like or you do your beet. We have vegetarians in our family. Some people do a beet if they yeah, would rather. like a blood not. red beet, which blood, I love. Yeah, which is also sort of powerful and gross. Marjorie, there's an egg on there too. Why is there an egg? Again, I'm going to go with the symbolism. Just sort of this primal spring fertility. It's um, round. Yeah. It's all of existence. Exactly. It's I like infinity. the I want to do that one as hippie as we can possibly. So yeah, basically it. sometimes it's another reminder in addition of the Paschal sacrifice and then it's basically like an all-purpose symbol of the cycles of of life, which is like it's great. And saving the best for last. What does everybody love? Is that right? Choroset. Yeah. Okay. So Choroset, that represents the mortar that the Israelites used to make the bricks, to build the things for the Egyptians. I will say it's delicious for, for something that's supposed to represent mortar. 
It's so true. I guess maybe it's about the value of hard work. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I don't know. And I, I will say that also in this Haggadah is a feature called Harosets Around the World, because every Jewish community across history and across the world makes this differently based yes. on what's available in their regions. Yes, which is really kind of lovely. And I used to be more uh, fetishistic about like doing everybody's different kinds of recipes. Um, and now I just go freeform because I'm just that relaxed. Except in my house, I have a fatal allergy to tree nuts. I spent two Passovers of my childhood not really able to breathe. So that was fun. It's always exciting. But now that I run a Seder, there are no nuts allowed. And I even have little bowls that I made in a ceramic place that is like no nut haroset all over it. So I do big chunks of apple because then you get the crunch without a nut um, and slivovitz or the dewy wine, orange, orange peel, you know, orange zest, uh, cardamom. And I like sometimes do some ginger, so fresh ginger. So it's really spicy. That's lovely. It's delicious. So Marjorie, yeah. you just covered all the basics. These yeah. are indeed the traditional components of a traditional patriarchal Ashkenormative setter plate. But there are other items that people around the world uh, in the last, let's say, 30 or 40 years have taken to adding to their Seder plates in order to symbolize all kinds of other forms of liberations of other groups. Things more modern than a Paschal sacrifice. Correct. <laughs> right. Run us through some of these. Sure. I think probably the most common recent addition is the orange, which has had different interpretations. And it, the story that you usually hear, which is actually wrong, is that a rabbi once said that a woman belongs on the bima like an orange belongs on a Seder plate. It is usually used for LGBT Jews and other marginalized people. So we can include the women in that. It symbolizes, hey, this doesn't go here. Yes, it does. I love that. Yeah. Uh, some people will do olives about which symbolizes peace in the Middle East, which is mm. lovely. I've seen people do coffee beans, which is about no slave labor and fair trade. Chocolate would also do that, fair trade chocolate. Yeah. Oh, I see in your beautiful Haggadah, you say bananas, which I'm not familiar with, which is for standing with refugees, which is lovely. I thought the one that I like is pine cones for criminal justice reform. I don't entirely understand the connection, but... I have not seen that. That's sort of a something fun... about prickliness? I don't, I don't know. know. Hey, it's producer Josh Cross here, and I actually went and looked up the whole pinecone criminal justice thing, and if some of you thought about pinecones and took a guess at it, pinecones don't release their seeds unless they've been burned in a fire. So those seeds that are in your pinecones are actually incarcerated in there and cannot get out on their own without some external force releasing them. Wow. So that seems to be the basis of that metaphor. I did not even know pinecones had seeds, so I guess I have a lot of learning to do. <laughs> I love this. And I think people should just be like taking this on and adding things, even if they're not part of the, the, the canon of new items. Exactly. Like turn this into your thing. Make this a family thing. Ask your kids what kind of symbolic things we can put on the Seder plate. It's an opportunity for education for all. The yearning of the people for freedom. So now that we've got the Seder plate set up, let's get going. First up, Kadesh, or the blessings. Alana, what is the deal? Kadesh means to consecrate. We start nearly every one of our holiday meals and Shabbat meals by blessing wine. Obviously, the Passover Seder is distinguished uh, by the fact that we not only have one cup this evening, but we have so many cups tonight. Four cups of wine. You call it Passover. I call it a Wednesday. <laughs> okay, we've done the blessings. 
We've we've gotten our Baruch Atah Adonai on. What is next? Alana, what do they say is next in line to godliness? Cleanliness. The next step is washing our hands. <laughs> so Urchatz, this is the first time in the Seder of two times that we are commanded to wash our hands. I have to say that was like pretty pre-trend on the hand washing. Way to go, way to go Jews. Yes, yes, they had no Purell, but they still were nearly obsessive about washing their hands in this ritual. The funny thing about this is like, my family always had this joke where we would pretend to wash our hands. We would all sit there and like fake wash our hands. <laughs> And that feels so quaint right now. That feels so silly. There were those memes circulating that shows like the order of this year's Seder. But Orchatz, the the washing of the hands, is between every single one to show that we are actually washing our hands all the time. So I think that this one will be, I don't know, like a kind of thought-provoking moment in the Seder now that hand washing has become like our national pastime. But they never did. I never had a problem with that. And so having washed our hands, we are at liberty to deal with one of the strangest part of the Seder table, because, you know, I'm going to be honest about this. We're not rabbinic scholars, but we looked far and wide, and no one really has a pretty decent, solid idea of why we have the karpas on the table. The karpas could be anything. It's a fruit of the earth. It could be parsley or celery or boiled potato or onion or anything else you want, which we take and dip in salt water. Some say that it's because the salt water symbolizes the tears of the Egyptians. Some say it's just a green herb that symbolizes spring and rebirth. And some, which is kind of my favorite explanation that we learned while preparing the Sagada, say that it's a memory of Joseph's technicolor dream coat that was dipped in blood by his brothers as they tried to convince their father that he was eaten by wild animals. And therefore, we commemorate the whole thing. But whatever it is, the carpus is there to intrigue and entice you and, and remind you that some things just don't have a good explanation. I'm sorry, wait. Can we go to that last one? What? The one about the blood? <laughs> tell me I have I tell me about that one. Actually, this one comes from um courtesy of my father. Somebody once told him that about a Rashi that notes that the first time the word karpas appears is actually um, as a description of Yosef's coat, which of course makes sense because Yosef's time in the desert, when Yosef was actually abandoned by his brothers, is the start of the story that becomes the Passover story. My father used to tell this Rashi every single Pesach at our friends, the Wieners, um, where we used to go every single year for the second Seder. My father was not somebody who was raised religious. I actually don't know what about this captured his imagination, but something really did. And my father died in June. And I have to say that it's taken on new meaning for me. It's actually super poignant to be thinking about it now. And I want to present the idea of something, which is that so many people have experienced pain beyond what's been in headlines this year and have experienced loss. Part of what I want Carpas to be for everyone is an acknowledgement of everyone's pain, even beyond what we're paying so much attention to right this minute. So many of us have lost people or are losing people. So many of us have lost things that are that feel so big. And so I guess for me, in memory of my father, Carpas is going to stand in for me for kind of the non-coronavirus uh, related pain of the past year. I love that. At this point in the Seder, we're almost ready to start telling the story of Passover. But before that, we're going to pull out some food, not let you eat it, 
but show it to you. So this one is yachatz, and you take the middle matzah from the pile on your table and you break it into two pieces um, so that one piece is larger than the other. You put the small piece back on the table and then you take the larger piece and you wrap it up either in your afikoman bag or just in, I don't know, a paper towel this year. We, nothing, no one's perfect. Um, and you hide it somewhere. And so this is the root of the tradition of searching for the afikoman. But I will say as a young person to see the matzah come out but not be eaten is like a little bit messed up. So let's go to the storytelling now. Are we gonna hear the story of the Exodus, Alana? Like, what is it that we hear right now? We're about to experience the reviews of a piece of theater, the costumes, the set, the stage, without the actual piece of theater. There's no Exodus in what you're about to hear. What makes up the Haggadah is a collection of disagreements and conversations among rabbis about how best to understand the story of the Exodus. For some of us, there's a lot of confusion about why we don't actually just tell the story of what happened. It seems like a kind of poorly written narrative, but it only seems that way if you don't understand what the whole point of it is, which is not to tell the story of the Exodus. We all know it. And if not, there's that great movie that we can all watch. <laughs> it's about fighting over a story. It's about remembering a story. It's about adding chapters to a story. Every single time I think about this incredible piece of research that was done on the two sets of Holocaust survivors. One set, there was a lot of suicides in Holocaust survivors in Israel in the 50s and 60s. And the other set of survivors were people who became incredibly successful, both financially or professionally or and familially. They just created big families and big careers. And the difference between the two, as this psychologist who ran the study said, was that the group of people who he called the super survivors were the people who knew, who understood a story. They understood that the Holocaust was the prologue and the rest of their lives was actually the book. To me, that's the Haggadah. This is the beginning of your story. It's the, it's the best beginning you have. It's not the end. It's not the whole story. It's not even a middle chapter. It's literally the prologue to you. Amen to that. Especially this year, that feels so profound. That's such a profound insight for this year. By the way, nothing more Jewish than to have a night where we tell a story, but they don't even tell us the story <laughs> that we're going to tell. The story And then I talk about the right. Holocaust. And then we talk about the Holocaust. <laughs> and then we drink. So everyone drink, basically. <laughs> sort of peak of the Seder, which is the four questions, which is when the youngest person at the table, which is like always somehow like an awkward teen, has to sing Manishana Halayla Hazet, which is kind of like a hard thing to sing because um, you really high pitch, basically asking why is this night different from all other nights. I hear that this year Gal Gadot is asking a bunch of celebrities to sing it on Instagram. So it feels right that the sort of lead off to this is how is tonight different from all other nights? So let's learn a little bit about these four questions. Oh, 
my dear friends in the J Crew, I now give you two thoughts on the four questions. The four questions are that part of the Seder where the youngest child is supposed to sing out loud four questions about Passover, the holiday, the Seder, the celebration. The first thing, of course, is that some of you have noticed over the years, and then you've said, oh, no, 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 it doesn't matter. I'm not going to think about it. It's too crazy. But you've noticed that there's actually only one question. (laughs) The question is, why is this night different from all other nights? And really, there are four answers. On all other nights, we eat leavened bread. Tonight, only matzah. On all other nights, we eat vegetables. Tonight, only bitter herbs, which isn't really true. We can eat other vegetables as well if we so choose. On all other nights, we don't dip our food even once. Tonight, we dip twice. Again, not really true. On other nights, we can dip our foods. I mean, we can put fries and ketchup on other nights. Perfectly kosher. On all other nights, we sit eating or reclining. But tonight, we only recline. Again, not really true. Most other nights, we don't recline. And on this night, most people don't fully recline. These are obviously koans. They are riddles to get us thinking. And so think about them. Meditate over them. This is one part of the Seder that almost everyone who's ever been to a Seder knows because you remember that melody. Yep, that's right. Even those of us who can't sing, we can sing that if we've heard it even once or twice. So this in some ways is inscribed in our experience as the center of the Seder, I would say. And it's worth meditating on reclining, on dietary restrictions, on bitter foods versus sweet or salty, and on immersion dipping. These are big, big, big questions. And that brings me to my second point about the four questions, which is these are big questions said by a little person. I can't think of much else in world religion in which a ritual calls on the youngest person in the room to step up. I mean, again, I can think of moments. The Catholic Church has its altar boys and altar girls, right? There are roles in other faiths for young people. It exists elsewhere. But this is a very rare case of a ritualized, sacred function for somebody who may be only three or four or five years old. And in that tradition, there is great wisdom. In that tradition, we as a people have said that as long as you're old enough, not even to read, but even just to memorize, even just to sing out loud stuff that's been sung to you so much that now it's with you in your body and in your mind, you are ready to participate. Before you have any thoughts of becoming a bar or bat mitzvah, before you have any thoughts of work or marriage or even homework, you are ready to take part in the telling of our people's central story. I love that. I love that this holiday can't be done right without a young person in the room. But here's the thing. While this is a ritual open to a young child, it only says the youngest person in the room. The tradition only holds that it should be the youngest person present which means that sometimes a 40-year-old or a 60-year-old or a 70-year-old will have to recite the four questions. That child lives eternally inside all of us. All of us have to be ready to be called at a moment's notice to reach inside and find that source, tap that source of wonder, that, that childlike wonder at being called to participate in an old ritual for the first or second time and step up and take your place in the tradition. If it's good for a four-year-old, it's good for a 94-year-old. And those four questions can be said by either. We 
are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. So by far, my favorite part of the Haggadah is a really little and seemingly completely random piece that comes right at the beginning, telling us of Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah and Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Tarfon, who are just hanging out in Bnei Brak, which is in Israel, telling the story of the Exodus all night long. For many years, I asked myself, What's so special about that Seder of these rabbis? Why does the Haggadah need to stop all the action to tell us of their gathering and their conversation, especially as no detail is given about what it is that they spoke of that magical night all those years ago in Bnei But these five rabbis were supremely important. These five rabbis were the Talmudic sages, who were the wisest rabbis living in the period directly following the destruction of the Second Temple in the year 70 CE. And this nocturnal meeting we read about wasn't just a leisurely seder. They weren't just hanging out and reclining to the left and drinking. It might well have been a discussion about how to continue to sustain Judaism now that its beating heart, the Temple in Jerusalem, was no more. So how do you sustain a religion in the shadow of such a seminal disaster? These five rabbis had an amazing and revolutionary idea. They took the entire religion and they put it in a book. But not just a book of stories and commandments, because they knew that stories and commandments, no matter what, have a way of getting, well, kind of old and falling into disrepair. Instead, they gave us the Talmud. They captured not their rulings, but their arguments, not their commandments, but their reasons. They left us a whole majestic record of disputations and dissents and disagreements, encouraging us not merely to obey, but to do what they did and reenact the same arguments, the same conversations, the same satyrs. And so here we are all these years later, sitting at our homes with our families, doing the same thing, that these wise rabbis had done. And if nothing else, we should learn from them that even in the shadow of great tragedy, faith and friendship always find the way forward. One of the 
smartest people we know is actually host of another one of Tablet's podcasts. It's Abby Pogerman. She hosts Parsha in Progress. Here's Abby with her breakdown of the four children. Hi, I'm Abby Pogrebin. I grew up assuming that the wise child was a wise ass. You know that show off at the Seder table who's always playing the expert. It bothered me that the number one son was the smarty pants when the point of the Seder is to spur a child's curiosity, not a child's mastery. I learned later that the wise child is actually asking something pretty useful. Which exact laws does God command us to obey? That makes the wise son a little less annoying, but not by much. The wicked child always made me think of a bully, a slacker, the kid who was caught shoplifting. But I learned as an adult that our tradition describes the wicked kid as the one who separates himself from his tradition, who asks, what are all these things to you, as if they don't apply to him, too. In that case, I definitely used to qualify as wicked, because I saw myself as a bystander to my tradition. That changed after I started to study it and frankly fell a little in love with it. Whenever I was assigned the simple child at my family's Seder table, I felt like I'd pick the booby prize. Who wants to be the stupid kid? But look again, and the simple child actually asks the fundamental question we all want to know. What does this mean? He's brave enough to ask what the Seder is about. Finally, fourth kid. Why on earth do we denigrate a child who does not know enough to ask? Isn't that the fault of his or her parents or teachers? I was that daughter who never investigated the burnt egg, the blinding maroor, or why we break the middle matzah. I was never told I could. I can't blame mom and dad. Okay, maybe I can. Passover was always a two-night marathon without much explained. The peak moment was the Barton's chocolate macaroons. No one debated the Haggadah, we just recited it. But I learned late that we're supposed to question all of it. That's why strange objects are put on the table. A lamb bone, wet parsley, dry carbs so that the children keep asking, stay absorbed, and stay awake. So how shameful that we seem to judge the very kids we want to engage. The Talmud says we should answer the child who doesn't know enough to ask by, quote, opening up the conversation. I finally learned to crack it open for myself, and I only wish I'd started before age 40. At least I can hope my own children will never be the fourth kid, that they'll know enough and be bold enough to ask. are here with Lewis Naiman. He's a retired union organizer whose writing can be found in Tablet, the Washington Jewish Week, and in these times. He wrote something extremely important for Tablet a few years ago, so important that we reprinted it in our Haggadah. What was it? The Ten Plagues Cocktails. That's right, a cocktail for every plague. Amen. Amen. Lou, thank you for your work. It's an honor to have my recipes in the same volume as the words of Rabbi Eliezer and Akiba. They would have enjoyed your work dearly. <laughs> Lou, how did you get this idea of making an original cocktail for each of the Ten Plagues? After we finished paying our last tuition payments for our last in college, we had some more discretionary income. So um, I was doing some good amount of drinking. Um, and, celebrating. Uh, celebrating that. Exactly. It was a mitzvah. I was to make a cocktail, and I saw a bottle of Slivovitz, which got me thinking about how the Egyptians weren't the only ones who were visited with plagues. So I was thinking, there's got to be something other than Slivovitz or Manischewitz or 
go on uh, Cabernets. So I started thinking about what could I drink as an alternative. Naturally, the plagues came to mind. So I started going with the obvious, the Red Nile, like like a uh, Bloody Mary, or Plague with Frogs. So naturally, you think of all French ingredients. <laughs> so that's not what kicked it off. But then you get to the death of the firstborn, and you're like, huh. That was a tough one, because one wanted to be only moderately offensive. So um, Hemingway's Death in the Afternoon came to mind. And that's what I, I settled on for that. And that's sparkling wine and absinthe, which is what you call Pharaoh's Lament, the cocktails, the Pharaoh's Laments. Yeah. And then I'm really intrigued by brandy and gin, which is the one you concocted for the beast's plague. And you call it the Zion King. And I think that just sounds yeah. delicious. Brandy and gin are two, two of my favorite things. Do you have a favorite of all 10 that you made? Like, which one would you kick back with even when it's not Passover? Which one would you recline with? Exactly. <laughs> that are my favorite both have absinthe and that's the Elysian Dream which is the Plague for Darkness and the Pharaoh's Lament the absinthe works kind of like an injection of jet fuel it really sends you into the blattosphere besides tasting good I have to say the one that really sticks out to me is for Plague 3 Vermin you have the cockroach that's what the cocktail is called and it is tequila and Sabra coffee liqueur and that scares me more than cockroaches do it was based on an actual drink, which was tequila and Kahlua. That's, that's a cockroach. I have taken to substituting Sabra, which is sort of a chocolate orange, and that uh, sweetens it up a little bit. Uh, it also has the benefit of actually having a, a kosher for Passover hetcher. Let's say that someone goes to our website and finds these recipes. How do you deploy them at a Seder? I mean, do people surround themselves with 10 little shot glasses at each setting, or do you just kind of mix and match and, and maybe use a couple of them? But I'll tell you, I'd want to be at that Seder. I mean, those, that's a better Jew than I am. <laughs> the problem is you've got enough to do on Pesach already. So I wouldn't expect anybody to burden themselves with making all 10. The only time I made all 10 in an afternoon was at a tasting when I invited some friends over just before I finished the article. And, uh, you know, there were casualties all over the place uh, <laughs> on that one. Like the Passover story. Yeah, exactly. So I, I mean, I would suggest, you know, Passover is eight days. So um, I'd suggest maybe one or two cocktails at the Seder, uh, maybe one near the start, one near the end, and then saving the others for some other occasions during the eight days. Lou Naiman, thank you so much for this creation. Um, our listeners can find all of Lou's kosher for Passover 10 plague cocktail recipes at tabletmag.com and in tablets brand new Haggadah. Thank you, Lou. Lou, thank you. Thank you, thank you. We'll drink with you soon. Blood. Frogs. Lice. Wild beasts. Pestilence. Boils. Hail. Locusts. Darkness. Death of the firstborn. Those are some fire plagues. That sounds like the gnarliest kind of like automatic call-in system menu ever. Right. For lice, press three. Please listen as our menu options have changed. By the way, do you believe that any menu options have ever changed? No. Ever no. in the history of menu no. options? I, I think it's a hoax. 
No one changes. Why would you change your menu options? Why, what maniac would go through it? The plagues are like the darkest thing ever. Um, and it's very, very creepy. And it's the one time in the Seder where like things really get real, if, even if you're just skimming through the rest. And there's nothing more Jewish than reading a story about not dying of plagues at a time where you're stuck at home hoping to not die of plagues. Yeah, this is the part of the Seder that I think is going to have the most resonance this year because... As you say, we are amidst a plague right now, and I think this is going to be one of those great opportunities for a lot of conversation. That's, you know, you sort of take a break from reading and you talk about what it's like to be existing right now. I think that's what's going to really make this year a very deep and, and meaningful conversational uh, thing. And you could change some of the animals instead of the wild beasts and the lice and the locusts. You could go bats, pangolin. I mean, just take your pick. The plague of bad grammar, people dropping the M from whom? <laughs> Right. What's the one you hate? Verses and verse? The plague of people thinking that VS period is pronounced verse instead of verses. So you just hate young people. The plague of Zoom glitches. <laughs> hey, it's Josh Cross with a K. I'm thinking that right now you could use a break in the episode, and I'm about to use my prerogative as the producer to do it. If there's one aspect of Passover that has become part of everyday Jewish life, it's the song and the word Dayenu, or it would have been enough. I'm going to give you a little musical interlude, the kind of cover version of Dayenu that I would do if it was my band. Back in May of 2019, on episode 183, we talked to Bram Presser, who has a band called Yidkor. This song is from their 2000 album, also called Yidkor. I think if that was the only thing I gave you before getting back to the rest of the episode, it would have been enough. However, first I want to share a story from Tablet's executive editor, Wayne Hoffman, about an extremely special Passover. My big gay Seder wedding. Three decades ago, I brought Mark to our family Seder for the first time. We'd been together the previous Passover too, but at that point, I'd been too embarrassed to bring my boyfriend to this annual gathering of family and friends. I thought my parents might be uncomfortable. I thought our guests might be uncomfortable. 
I thought Mark might be uncomfortable. I thought I would be uncomfortable. The next year, I got over myself, realizing I wanted to share a tradition I love with the man I love, and I wanted to share him with our Seder guests. Exactly 20 years later, we eloped the afternoon before the first Seder. Seated around the table that night with the people who now knew Mark as part of my family, and by extension, theirs, we made the announcement after the four questions, adding, why is this night different from all others? Because tonight, we are married. We held up our hands with our new silver wedding rings. Getting married? Dayenu, it would have been enough for us. Having a Seder as our wedding celebration? Even better. Please tell me now is when we eat. Now we eat. This is the point at which my family's seders end. Until working on this Haggadah, I did not realize there was stuff that came after dinner. I was just like, we get to the meal. The meal is the promised land. It turns out that is incorrect. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, the Afikoman never really did it for me, if I'm to be perfectly honest. There are so many things that can go wrong. First of all, I've been at a lot of seders where we totally forget to hide the afikomen. Sometimes we set it aside thinking, well, we'll hide it when the kids aren't looking, and then we just completely forget. Or we hide it somewhere and forget where we've hidden it, so when the kids can't find it, we don't really know where exactly it went. Then there's the matter of, even if it gets hidden, by the time you get to the end of the meal, the kids who would have the most fun finding the afikomen have really often drifted away. I mean, if you think about it, the idea of looking all around in a scavenger hunt for this one piece of cracker and then returning it to get, what, a dollar, maybe two or three dollars? This is fun pretty much for eight to 11-year-olds. I mean, three and four-year-olds just can't find stuff that's hidden above two feet, and they're probably asleep by the time you get to this point in the Seder. 12 and 13 year olds, well, it's a little bit like Halloween. I mean, if you're still putting on a costume and going out, then you're kind of in it just for the candy, right? She's not really that interested in the fun of the hunt. So yeah, the afikomen is for the eight or nine year old. And if there's only one eight or nine year old, well, then there's not a lot of fun running around trying to beat the other people to the afikomen. And if they're 15 or 20, it's kind of a madhouse. So I think somewhere in the world, there's this ideal Seder where there are five or six cousins or siblings who are all between the ages of eight and 11, and they all have fun looking for the afikomen, and one of them finds it. And then none of them melts down when that one gets the little piece of Passover chocolate or a little bit of money for returning the afikomen. But to be fair, it seems to me one of those things that's a lot better in theory than in practice. So how do you make it go right? Well, first of all, I think it's crazy if you're not hiding a bunch of afikomans. I mean, you got to give the kids a bunch of chances to find something. And then at the end of the night, whether one piece of matzah is returned or all five or six that you've hidden are returned, I think everyone gets some money. This is not the time to be precious about the tradition. This is the time to leave everyone happy. In our own agata, you'll see something that I didn't even know, which is that the tradition actually is that the afikomen has to be ransomed, that there's a negotiation between the leader of the Seder and the boy or girl who finds the afikomen, in which the boy or girl has to be offered a sufficient entreaty, a sufficient reward to give the afikomen back. So they can essentially hold the afikomen hostage 
four, five dollars, ten dollars, whatever. In practice, I've never seen this done, but it's kind of a neat idea. So listen, hide more pieces of matzah, more afikomans. Make sure that there are lots of little rolled up one or five dollar bills or silver dollars for all of the kids who find the afikoman. Maybe make the gift a little bit more fun than just money. Maybe we could have little presents. Maybe play up the idea of the auction. Maybe have a little bit of bargain. Make it a, a kind of a game. But at the end of the day, remember, this is the end of the night. The afikoman is supposed to be the last piece of food that's eaten before the final glass of wine is drunk. The afikoman should not be an occasion for tsuris, for annoyance. It should be an opportunity to bring the kids back to the table. Let's face it. They've gone and holed up, sneaked some TV, busted out that Game Boy or the game on their phone. Maybe they're curled up in the corner reading a novel. Some of them are asleep on the sofa in the front room. The afikoman is the opportunity to get them back on their feet, get them running around, and get them back to the table to sing some songs and have that final glass of, yeah, maybe wine that'll help them sleep soundly. This is time to pat your belly, go to bed, and be grateful for your freedom. Jay Kuro, I have a question for you. Who is this Elijah, really? And why is he welcome at all of our seders? Why does he get a special cup? Why do we have to open the door for him? Well, the answer is complicated and fascinating. If you imagine the prophet as a kindly old man with a soft white beard, the Bible has some jarring surprises in store. The historical Elijah was a fiery prophet, best known for slaughtering hundreds of pagans on Mount Carmel. He was my kind of guy, a bearded, tough-talking, armed, hard-charging man of God who so irked the king that he had to flee into the desert and hide. There he is on Mount Sinai, and all of a sudden God speaks to him and asks him, Hey Elijah, why the long face? And Elijah, never one to mince words, says that he feels lonely, presumably because he is despaired of his people and their all-too-human inclination to fall short of holiness. He tells God that he feels like he's the only righteous Jew in the world and everyone else is being kind of a jerk or a sinner or a so-and-so. As one legend has it, God, punishing the prophet for his arrogance, commands him to visit every Seder in perpetuity so that he may see the Jews everywhere, even millennia later, still observe the old traditions and that there's hope for us all yet. All right, so basically we have we have like a three-part structure after the meal. The first is Barech, more blessings, which are beautiful and lyrical. The second is the Hallel, which is a vestige from the days of the temple. This is the prayer that the Kohanim the priests used to say as they were sacrificing animals, which we no longer do, but we still take the time to basically reflect on our gratitude uh, to God and, you know, maybe to each other for being here all together on that night. And finally, we get to all these delightful songs. So as somebody who is not particularly Jewishly educated and is definitely not musically capable, I've always been a little afraid of singing. I also didn't grow up with Passover songs beyond the typical Dayenu. As an adult, I've come to learn, looking through Haggadahs, through Haggadot, that there are other Passover songs. And some of them are really fun and almost impervious to my off-key awfulness. They are 
energetic, active songs that really don't care if you can match pitch. I asked Rabbi Menachem Creditor, a friend of mine and somebody who is musically gifted, as well as a pretty profound guy, to explain two of those songs for us. These are songs that I've added to my Passover experience since becoming an adult, and we're going to invite you to add them as well. Have a listen. Hi, this is Menachem Creditor. I'm just sharing two of my favorite songs from the Passover Seder. I love these so much. These are the ones that if you last till the end of the Seder, you get to enjoy. One of them is called Echad Mi Odea, who knows one? And the other one is called Chad Gadya, which means um, one little goat. So Echad Mi Odea has a melody you might be familiar with. It goes, Echad Mi Odea, Echad Ani Odea. And that means, who knows one? I know one. One is God in heaven and on earth. And it goes through who knows one, who knows two, who knows three, who knows four, all the way until it gets to 13, and 13 being the attributes of God, 12 being the tribes, 11 being the stars of Joseph's dream, 10 being the commandments, 9 being the months that uh, a baby is being created, 8 is the days before bris, 7 is the days of the week, 6 is the orders of the Mishnah, 5 are the books of the Torah, 4 are the mothers, and 3 are the fathers, and 2 are the tablets that Moshe brought. And you can hear, as I'm reciting it, there's a rhythm to this. I would grow up singing this in English and in Hebrew, and one of the things it did, A, is it gave me an enchanting way of learning so much of the canon. It's the widest sweep through Jewish literary history. But that's not what I was thinking as a child. I was thinking I made it till the end of the Seder, and I got to sing this song, and eventually I could sing it as fast as the grown-ups at the table. And so I love this one because it's a good way of learning, but it doesn't feel like learning it's just fun. I learned this in Yiddish one year when I was in fifth grade from a, a Borscht Belt singer. And each time I hear this song, it brings me to different moments of my own growth. And I love remembering the melodies, sitting, sitting around the table with, with my sisters and with my family and taking turns being the mothers and the fathers. And it's just really enchanting. So too do I love Chad Gadya, the One Little Goat song. You might know this one um, for any number of reasons. One of them is you can do animal noises during it. And it's so much fun. And it continues the same way that Who Knows One did. It starts small and then it gets bigger. So the melody that's at least most popular that I know is Chad Gadya, Chad Gadya. Which means, one little goat my father bought for two zuzim. Zuzim were units of currency at the time. And then things happen. It's a very active story, and there's a rhythm to it, and the enchanting experience of singing it, especially as a child, was all I thought of until I got older. So let's go through first the sweetness of it, and then I'll share what I think is a very deep teaching. The sweetness of it is that the cat gets, uh, the, the goat gets bit by a cat, and then the cat gets bit by a dog, and the dog gets hit by a stick, and the stick gets burned by fire, and the fire gets quenched by water, 
and the water gets drunk by an ox, and the ox gets slaughtered by a shochet, a ritual slaughterer, and the shochet is slaughtered by the um, by the angel of death, and then God slaughters the angel of death. Now, I know that as I say that, what you probably see is something worthy of a very violent uh, comic book or, or superhero story, and I didn't think about that as a child either. I just thought about how active it was. It was so fast-paced. And when you would get to Ve'ata Shunra, which is the cat, someone would go, Meow! Ve'achla Legadya. So if you go all the way, let's say, to where the stick is, Ve'ata Chutra, right? And it goes, Bang! Ve'hika Lechalva, Woof! Denashach Lechunra, Meow! Ve'achla Legadya, Bang! And of course, whoever could make the best sound for the angel of death, like the ghost monsters from Pac-Man or, or some ghost sound. On one level, it was just so much fun to sing. And it really still is. But at the deepest of levels, and this is why, as an adult, I appreciate the song, even though I reject cycles of violence. And I see the song as problematic in that level, except that it provokes the response, which is healthy. The very end of it, if you remember what I said, is, right, the angel of death kills the slaughterer, the slaughterer killed the ox, but that's not the end of the song. The end of the song is that God kills the angel of death. And in the teachings of one of my most beloved mentors, Rabbi Neil Gilman, um, he has a book called The Death of Death. The greatest thing that we say at the very end of the Seder, if you last that long, even after the rituals are done, that's when the songs are scheduled to happen. Among the best things that we do is we say, God, one day even death will die. One day we will be done with all of the death. And what a powerful thing it is to think about, especially this year, that Seder can be the biggest blessing, intention, wish, hope for the world to see health, to see life. And so one of the ways we get there is by singing sweet songs. And this year, if this is the first time you're going to sing it, I encourage you, sing with everything you've got. Make all the animal noises. It can be so much fun to bring life and music and a little bit of humor into the Seder, all the while making more meaning. May this year be a really good one for you and those you love. Rabbi Menachem Creditor, he works for UJA Federation of New York. He also is the guy who wrote that song, Olam Chesed Yibaneh, that you now see at every Jewish social justice march ever. Thanks to Rabbi Menachem. Josh Dalgan, I'm going to tell you about yourself. You are a Canadian rapper and record producer, and you are known for just a very cool mix of hip hop, klezmer, folk, bass. You have you sort of do it all. And you put out a very cool album a while back called The So-Called Seder. Mm-hmm. Will you tell us a little bit about that record? Yes, it came out in 2005. About two years before that, I just started making these sample-based hip hop things using all these Seder records that I had kicking around. Like I was into making beats and like sample-based hip-hop products. 
and I and I got a sampler eventually when I was a teenager. And in my basement, I started making beats. Now I'm Canadian. I'm Jewish. I'm white. I'm like in Quebec, uh, and I'm in a basement, and I'm making hip hop, which is, sounds sort of ridiculous. And it was kind of weird, especially 25 years ago, to be not in the Bronx making hip hop. But I always loved hip hop, and it was the music of my generation. And I wanted to participate, and I wanted to like put myself into the music. If you listen to the Wu Tang clan they're always saying like it's about representing who you are representing your crew and representing where you're from so i felt weird sampling like african-american music even though that was actually the music that got me into hip-hop but i knew that I, it was sort of disingenuous for me to be sitting there making african-american based hip-hop so i started to look through my parents record collection and my record collection and i started to find jewish records and that seemed like a pretty cool way to put some of my own culture into this new culture of hip-hop in a kind of honest way. And one thing I started to find were sort of funny, corny, 50s and 60s children's Jewish holiday records. Basically, I found a loop on one of them for the four questions for Manishtana. And it was this sort of funky, unusual melody. And I sampled it and looped it. And there it, and it went Manishtana, Manishtana, Manishtana. And then I started to sample other records talking about the four questions. And then I'd made a hip hop four question song. Hang on, hang on here. We'll count to four. And from there, I started to find other songs from the Passover service. And before I knew it, I sort of made this little EP of Passover songs. And somehow someone wrote an article about it for like uh, the foreword, I think. And lo and behold, I got in the mail like 500 mailed envelopes of people ordering this thing. And it was sort of the beginning of my so-called career. Album ends up coming out um, through Jada Records, which is a wonderful um, Jewish music label that shared offices with Tablet for a little while. The album cover with the matzah, the shmura matzah on a record player, was that your original? That was me too. And it was also, I mean, it's actually kind of amazing how much has changed and like where this was in the history of the digital reality. Like that was kind of revolutionary to me, at least, to work on the computer and put pictures together. <laughs> and make funny pictures using Photoshop. That just didn't exist 20 years ago. So is it funny to you that 15 years later, here you are doing an interview about this thing that obviously you did professionally, but but was so ahead of its time in, in so many ways? It's strange. You sort of never know what you've done, if it's going to have impact or if it's going to stick around. Uh, like you can work forever on something and it could be like a passion project and you've like sunk your heart and soul into it and nobody will ever know and no one will ever care. Or it could be this, this thing that just kind of just really just happened and you just put it out and you did it. And then it really, it's like sort of my calling card and people are, yeah. So here I am talking to you about it and <laughs> it's insane. So if you're a hip hop fan, I think you'll get it. Like you'll, you'll get the joke and you'll get the art that's in it. And you could just enjoy all the bits that go together. If you're Jewish and, and you celebrated Passover and you love hip-hop, like, you've got to hear this thing. <laughs> and, I, and I would probably start with the four questions because it's kind of the most simple statement of, of this idea. Josh Dalgan, thank you for telling us why this album is different from all other uh, Passover rap albums, which... I <laughs> uh, nice Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. And so... Free man is like a king. Let's all rejoice in our freedom. And remember, it's a very precious thing.
Friends, at the end of the Seder, it is traditional to scream, shout, or sing the Shana Haba'ah B'Yerushalayim, next year in Jerusalem. Jerusalem can be whatever you want it to be. It can be the actual physical Jerusalem. It can be the Jerusalem of the mind. It's wherever you come home to when you think of coming home at the end of days. We wish to see you there next year. This year, I would say that wherever Jerusalem is, it's outside and we can hug. And that's where we'll be next year. Thank you for joining us on this special Passover episode. And we now charge you to go forth and make this year's Seder your very own. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, and by Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And the team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Jerome Rusquet, and the administrative support team of Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and get our brand new swag at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. For this episode, the Passover-inspired hip-hop tracks are from the so-called Seder, which you can find on Spotify or on socalledmtl.bandcamp.com. The punk version of Dayenu and another song after the credits are from the band Yidkor and their 2000 album of the same name. Send us snail mail at P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 10001. Rabbinic supervision by whichever awesome person is leading your Seder. And we come to you from Tablet Studios or around the Seder table. Shalom, friends. To light, to light, Healthy. Long